Lexicon Valley is brought to you by MailChimp. The people behind MailChimp appreciate a clear voice, an intentional tone, and just the right word. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 31, titled Name That Tone, wherein we discuss how some tongues may improve your ear. Hey, Mikey. Bobby, baby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid, thank you. Yourself? I'm great. Welcome back from your jet-setting several weeks abroad. Yeah, uh, Brooke over at uh, On The Media <laughs> called it on the air, my vision quest. <laughs> Wait, so you are in France, England, and Serbia? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, the ordinary summer itinerary. <laughs> you got me beat. My uh, my recent travels include mostly Amazon.com, you know, baby shopping, mm-hmm. and the grocery store, and Chicago, which was very nice. And so was the Amazon. What do we have today? Well, first, I want to read two very brief comments, neither of which are about you. So you're off the hook this week. All right. I'm going to go just put on a cup of coffee. I'll be back. (laughs) I thought you would tune out when I said that. So somebody wrote on Slate recently a comment about my delivery, I guess you'd say. They wrote, thanks for ruining a really interesting topic, William Shatner. What? Why? They think you're too halting and deliberate or something? I guess. You know, I'm not the smooth, polished broadcaster that Bob Garfield is, of course, but literally within, I think, hours of that comment, somebody else wrote, a guy named Teacherman82, wrote on iTunes the following. I could listen to Mike read the ingredients in the most processed thing on earth. His voice is perfect for a podcast. So it occurred to me after reading these two somewhat contradictory comments that often throughout life, we human beings are faced with the question, do I suck or am I great? Not that there's you know nothing in between. Right now, in this moment, I choose to believe the latter. So Teacher Man 82, this is for you. Enriched wheat flour, sugar, corn syrup... <laughs> Niacin, water, high fructose corn syrup, vegetable shortening containing one or more of the following, partially hydrogenated soybean oil, cottonseed oil, canola oil, and beef fat, dextrose, whole eggs, modified cornstarch, cellulose gum, whey, leavenings, including sodium acid pyrophosphate, baking soda, and monocalcium phosphate, salt, cornstarch, corn flour, corn syrup solids, mono and diglycerides, soy lecithin, polysorbate 60, dextrin, calcium cassinate, sodium stearol lactylate, wheat gluten, calcium sulfate, natural and artificial flavors, caramel color, yellow number five, and red number 40. Pop-tarts? What what was that from? It's from a food that makes its triumphant return today, in fact, July 15th, Monday, Twinkies. Ah, yeah. Well, you gave him everything he asked for. You went through that entire list of ingredients. You certainly did that. (laughs) You know, the joke was pretty good after the fourth ingredient, but you stayed with it, Mike. I did. I did. I really kept it going. All right. Today's episode begins with a 19th century French medical doctor named Pierre-Paul Broca. Broca had a couple of patients who, one as the result of epilepsy and the other as the result of a stroke, lost the ability to produce speech. 
One of them, in fact, was nicknamed Mr. Tan because the word tan was the only thing he could say, which, you know, makes for some very dull conversation. The other guy had a handful of words left in his repertoire, including oui and non, yes and no, and a few others. Now, after these guys died, Broca examined their brains and discovered that they had an injury to the same part of their frontal lobe, a part of the brain that's now referred to as Broca's area. Now, this part of the brain, we've since come to learn, is responsible not only for the production of speech, but also for our ability to understand other people's speech. In other words, it figures prominently in deciphering syntax, you know, the way in which we order words to form sentences and ultimately meaning. Yes, I'm more, I have more than passing acquaintance with this part of the brain. My uh, father was a stroke victim at a young age, and this was the part of his brain that was damaged. And uh, I lived with, I lived, he lived with aphasia for uh, the rest of, the brief rest of his life. It was, uh, it was no fun. It is no fun. I'm sorry to hear that. Now, the brain is only so big, so many parts of it moonlight in the service of other related functions. They, they do double time. Now, there's a neuroscience lab at the University of Memphis directed by a researcher named Gavin Beidelman, who told me that Broca's area is precisely this sort of multitasker in the brain. In other words, yes, it's vitally important for processing language, but it appears to have another role. Here's Beidelman. That area also tends to show activity for processing music, music harmonies and the musical syntax, musical chord structure. So it's somehow doing more than just language and music. It's processing them both in a tandem way. So in other words, the brain treats chord progressions, in a sense, as a kind of language. In some sense, you could say that. That's right. And we think that that's one reason why this particular area is so sensitive to both language and music, because they share this very complex syntactic ordered structure. Well, I guess that makes some sense, Mikey. No neuroscientist I, but music is a, is a sort of language unto itself. You can write it. You can uh, speak it after a fashion. And I guess it's no surprise that it resides in the, the same brain centers as ordinary language. Yeah, exactly. And of course, you can read it too, just like you would a language. Now, there's a significant body of research suggesting that people with rigorous musical training have improved language abilities in a whole host of ways. For example, here's Beidelman. There's some evidence that if you're a trained musician, that that may help you acquire a second language, an unfamiliar language, faster than your non-musician peer. That's pretty interesting that music, which is seemingly unrelated to language, can actually accelerate, sort of provide a catalyst for language learning. So if you want to become a polyglot, take up the violin. <laughs> now, that's not to say that if you play the guitar, you can immediately pick up Mandarin Chinese, for instance, but people with extensive musical training do tend to pick up some of the sound elements and phonological elements of a language faster. Now, this makes me wonder what is correlated here. I mean, I suppose it's possible that the training in music itself strengthens the faculties that you require to acquire a second language. It's also possible that there's something innate about people who are both strong both in music and in language. It strikes me as maybe a chicken and egg proposition. Well, that's a good point. And we'll get to a theory that Beidelman suggests about why musical training might help with our language abilities. 
but first, as I alluded to, it's not just second language acquisition that's improved. It's many different verbal skills. So here's a few more minutes of my conversation with Beidelman, beginning with another example of how musical training bestows language benefits. One of the most salient things we find is that there seems to be a benefit of musical training in enhancing a person's ability to hear speech in noisy environments. So, in other words, if the signal is your conversational partner, the person who's talking to you, and the noise is the ambient chatter in, say, a large cafeteria, then trained musicians do a better job at distinguishing that signal from the noise. Correct. So I imagine we don't know for sure, but can we speculate about the general mechanism by which this works? In other words, by which musical training confers these speech and language benefits? I mean, I know that they share a region of the brain, and of course that's a clue right there. Right. But what would be the actual mechanism here? So what we find is that musicians tend to have enhancements in some of their brain activity, specifically as they're listening to speech or not only music, but speech and language uh, sounds as well. It's not only enhanced, that is, there's a greater sort of magnitude, their brain responds more robustly to speech sounds, but it also responds more precisely, so that in some ways the brain of a musician, the neural representation of speech is much more accurate. It's more reflective of the actual acoustic input. There's a higher fidelity in the musician brain. Is it a stretch to say that extensive musical training, in a sense, fine-tunes the auditory circuitry of the brain? That's a, that's a great way to put it. Musical training uh, tunes the brain, you know, pun intended there. <laughs> so long-term musical training, like any long-term training, you know, juggling, for example, alters your brain circuitry, right? You, when you develop a skill, your brain is changed in some way. Correct. But musical training in particular, it appears, alters your brain circuitry in a way that improves many of our verbal abilities. So Correct. you wondered is the reverse true, right? Are there certain languages that intrinsically confer musical benefits? Right. If we take that there is an overlap between language and music in the brain, and we know from a great deal of evidence that musical training can influence or improve language function, we were interested to examine whether language abilities, language experience might benefit music processing. Of course, an obvious place to look would be at what we call tone languages. These are languages that have a kind of musical element built in. Right. Unlike the English language, tonal languages, Mandarin Chinese, for instance, Cantonese, Vietnamese, Thai are good examples. In these languages, specific patterns of pitch can change the word meaning. To give you an example, and I don't speak Mandarin, but if I were to say the same syllable, ma, and I use different pitch inflections with my voice, like ma, 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 ma. Those actually mean four different things in Mandarin. It all sounds the same to us as an English speaker, but because I use different flexions of pitch, that actually signals word meaning. The theory here is that Cantonese speakers, by virtue of their speaking Cantonese and having to distinguish between pitch every day, at least linguistically, they might exhibit enhanced ability not just with language, but with music as well. That's the theory, anyway. That's the rationale. The specific reason we're interested to look at the Cantonese tone system is that there's five or six level tones, just flat, level, stair-step tones. And they tend to look a lot like how the pitches occur in music. So in music, what we find is that notes or pitches sort of unfold in these stair-step level 
sequences. In music, we might call them semitones. Right. And in, in Cantonese, you find that the differences between these tones are on the order of a semitone, or maybe even less. That's a fascinating idea to look at this in reverse. It got me wondering whether I could ever speak Cantonese, because while I'm not entirely tone deaf, I, don't, I have, uh, let's just say, imperfect pitch, okay? It's hard for me to match a note. So I can just see myself getting in a whole lot of trouble saying the wrong ma. Ma? Ma. Ma. And, you know, maybe ending up in a fistfight or something. You know, Bob, you're obviously joking, but that's not so far-fetched an idea. I actually happen to have a real-world, real-life example of almost precisely what you're talking about. You were in a fistfight in Guangzhou, uh, <laughs> China, over a mispronounced tone? No, but uh, my father-in-law, when he was a boy growing up in San Francisco, uh, he is Chinese-American. His mother and father speak Cantonese. His mother sent him to the Chinese grocery to get green onions. When he got there, he said the word... But apparently with the wrong inflection, everyone started laughing. Apparently what he was ordering was worms. <laughs> okay, so not so far-fetched, my concern. No, not at all. I mean, in that case, it ended up being not offensive, but humorous. But, you know, I could imagine it going either way. But getting back to the subject at hand, Beidelman wants to know whether in this overlap, the relationship between language and melody is a two-way street. Yeah, exactly. The word he uses is bidirectional. You know, he says, we know that music training confers language benefits. Does it work the other way around? And so at the neuroscience lab he runs, he devised an experiment, which I'll tell you about. But first, a brief word from our sponsor, MailChimp. Whether you have a home business or run a large company, if you frequently send out newsletters, product updates, event invitations, announcements of any kind over email, then MailChimp will help you design, create, send, and track all of it. They'll even help you market your newsletter on social media. And if you have fewer than 2,000 subscribers, you can send up to 12,000 emails a month for free with no contract and no credit card required. To read more about the company and the services they provide, go to MailChimp.com. That's MailChimp. Okay, so here's what Beidelman did. He got three groups of 18 people each. The first group was English speakers with extensive, at least 10 years, extensive classical music training. These were people who had a primary instrument and currently played that instrument. The second group were English speakers with little or no musical training, no more than three years, and they could have no musical training in the past five years. And the third group was Cantonese speakers, people who were born and raised in mainland China and still used Cantonese as their primary language, also with little or no musical training and none at all in the last five years. So English-speaking musicians, English-speaking non-musicians, and Cantonese-speaking non-musicians. Now, all of the people were around the same age, early to mid-20s, had approximately the same level of education, and all of them were right-handed. Now, Beidelman and his colleagues came up with a number of tests for these participants. Test number one, you hear a series of three pitches. Here's Beidelman. Two of those would be identical, and one would be slightly higher, and that's sort of assigned randomly. The person's task was essentially to identify which interval contained the higher-sounding pitch. And if they 
correctly identified which of the three was, you know, not like the others, then you would make the difference in pitch smaller and smaller until they couldn't identify it anymore. And you were trying to figure out what's the smallest difference they can detect, they can identify. Exactly. That's just called a pitch discrimination threshold. We're measuring the smallest difference in pitch you can actually reliably hear. All right. So are you with me there, Bob? Yeah, I'm with you. Three pitches. Fastball change-up cutter. Test number two. You hear a series of just two pitches. Relative to the first one, the second one is either ascending or descending, and it's up to you to discern which. But there's a catch. Here's Beidelman. So just to give you an example of what this would sound like, you would hear two pitches. Do-do. That would be ascending, right? It's going up. Here's another example. Do-do. That's an example in which it was descending, but the notes were much shorter. So the trick with this task is that we would play these people, these two sequential pitches, ask them if they were going up or down, but the trick is that they're getting shorter and shorter over time. And here again, we're measuring the shortest duration of pitch that you can reliably detect an up or down change. And I imagine the shorter those notes get, the harder it is. It becomes extremely hard to tell if two pitches are going up or down when they're extremely short. So actually, we're measuring thresholds 30 to 50 milliseconds. These are very, very short duration tones. All right, Bob. So do you want to give this one a shot? Sure. Why not? I'll start you off with a somewhat easier one where the duration of the pitches is fairly long. Here you go. Okay. Those were descending. Yes. Very good. This one's going to be a little bit harder. The duration of the pitches is very short. This is fun. This is like those hearing screening tests they gave me in uh, elementary school. (laughs) Anyway, I think that was descending, too. That one was ascending. That was going up. As I say, it was ascending. Yes. Okay, test number three. So what we would do is play a a very short melody, four or five notes, and then after about a second pause, a single tone. And the task was to determine if that single tone had occurred in the previous melody. Mm. And the accuracy on this test gives us an indication of not only how well you remembered the sequence you heard, but also how fast you make that decision tells us efficiency uh, in memory of tones. So the answer here is just a simple yes or no. Yes, that tone was in the melody. No, that tone was not. You got it. All right. You want to give this one a shot? Yeah, but, you know, come on. It's uh, clearly impossible. You've had some musical training, have you not? I have to go with no on that question. All of my children, however, top shelf. Well, then you've at least been present in the room when other people have been playing <laughs> instruments. Yes, I have, I have experienced other people's musical training firsthand, often at great expense. <laughs> at great expense, both financially and emotionally? No, no, emotionally it's fine, but it's, um, well, you're about to have a baby. I don't want to explain <laughs> the trajectory of musical training, but it usually ends quite abruptly. <laughs> With very little return on investment. I'm just saying this all. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, if you can pass this musical test, then maybe something rubbed off on you. All right, so here you go. Okay, so what's the question? (laughs) The question is, was that last pitch that you heard present in the sort of short melody you heard just prior? I believe it was not. I believe the last note was lower than any of the four that preceded it. You're right, Bob. That note was not present in the prior melody. See, this musical expenditure for your children, I think, was uh, money well spent. Mm, looks like I got my uh, $50,000 worth. 
All right. Thank God. Thank God. Okay, test number four. And this one was intended to gauge what Beidelman called more realistic music listening. And so in this test, what we did was play two melodies, one after the other. And these melodies would either be the same, the exact same, or they would be different. And when the melody was different, all we did was just take a single tone and sort of put it out of tune, slightly sharp or slightly flat. All right, Bob, I'm going to let you off on this one. I'm going to play a couple of these tests, and we'll throw it out to the listeners. You're going to hear two pairs of two melodies. Are they the same or not? All right, Mike, I heard him. I have my thoughts. I will, I will keep my own counsel on those. Our listeners can uh, write in to let us know what they think. But let's get back to the reason we've been listening to these. In this experiment, pitting uh, these three categories of listeners against one another, who fared the best? The results, right. Yes. Here's Beidelman. So if we just looked at very simple pitch discrimination tasks, the pitch speed task and the pitch discrimination thresholds. Cantonese and musicians were practically identical. They both had the same level of auditory acuity, which is better than, of course, the English-speaking non-musicians. But if we went to more complex auditory tasks that really required more specific sort of music listening skills, the, the melody discrimination task, we tended to find a gradient. So you always had musicians doing the best at this task, followed by Cantonese speakers followed by the English-speaking non-musicians. So while there was a tone language benefit to music processing, it wasn't as good, of course, as the trained musicians. But certainly with just about every task, better than the English-speaking non-musicians. Correct. Is it too late to introduce tones into English? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been pretty good for a couple thousand years, so... <laughs> Uh, that was a good question for him. Yeah, that's funny. But I have a couple of questions for you. The first is that in my kids' schools, the uh, orchestra slots are heavily, heavily overrepresented by kids who are uh, from Asian families, particularly Chinese families, I think where Mandarin is frequently spoken inside the home. So I'm wondering if that has something to do with, you know, the cultural stereotype of very ambitious Chinese parents, or whether Biden tell us that they're just the beneficiaries of, of a linguistic advantage of the tonality of Mandarin. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you could see in Biden's experiment that he controlled culture out of it, right? The Cantonese group and one of the English-speaking groups were both non-musicians, right? They didn't have this musical training. They weren't pushed in any way to study an instrument for a long period of time. So you can say that whatever ambitions their parents may have had were sort of teased out of the equation, in a sense. Hmm. All right. Now, my second question for you gets back to something that I was alluding to earlier, and that is that it seems to me that some people just have a particularly acute linguistic and musical intelligence, and these are they're often just smarter people. And I wonder if he made any attempt in selecting his groups for this test to create IQ parity among the, the groups that uh, were vying against one another. Yeah, that's an actually a really good point, because what I didn't mention is that Beidelman 
gave all of the participants a couple of tests that are not music-related. In fact, not even language-related. The first one is called a Raven's test. This is something that you may have encountered. It's used often in IQ tests as a measure of general intelligence. And the way it works, in essence, is you have nine squares arranged like a tic-tac-toe board, three rows of three, right? All of the squares, with the exception of the very last one, contain some sort of pattern, geometric shapes with different shadings. And your job is to figure out from a series of three or four multiple choices, which is the correct ninth square, you know, the one that completes the pattern. So Beidelman administered a whole bunch of these tests to each person. They got harder and harder. And the result was that they all did about the same. There was no statistical difference among the groups. In fact, the Cantonese speakers had the lowest average score, but it was by such a small amount that it could only be attributed to randomness. Now, I said there were two non-music tests. The second was something called Corsi Blocks. In this test, there are a series of squares, say, on a screen, and they light up in a particular pattern. You then have to touch the squares and make them light up in the same pattern, the longer the pattern, the harder it is, of course, from memory. Now, interestingly, the results of this test were a clear gradient. The musicians did the best by far, then the Cantonese speakers, and the English-speaking non-musicians did the worst. Now, we started out this episode talking about how musical training provides language benefits, like you know, faster second language acquisition, better signal from noise discernment. Well, there's very good evidence that musical training, either external or built in in your language, also improves your working memory. And of course, verbal ability relies very much on working memory as well. And so the evidence is now very strong in light of these results from Beidelman's research that there is, in fact, a kind of bidirectionality working here, that in this Broca's area of the brain, musical training benefits language processing and a certain kind of built-in musicality to language can benefit music processing. Hmm. Now, getting back to two subjects that I broached earlier, one, whether I've squandered money on my daughter's musical education, and two, my itinerary this summer, remember the third destination was Serbia. That's because that's where my in-laws are. My wife is a Serb, and my daughter, who is 12, speaks Serbian fluently. Do you think that if she wants to acquire a third language, let's say Mandarin, she's ahead of the game because she's the beneficiary of all these years of musical training? I would expect that if you started her on Mandarin lessons today, by the end of this year, she'd be fluent. (laughs) Sold. All right. Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us to tell us whether or not those uh, melodies were the same that you heard back a while ago or critique or praise my delivery, you can write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes if you have not already. I want to thank Gavin Beidelman. He's the director of the Auditory Cognitive Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Memphis. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's Podcasts. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah, we are done. Now, here's where I ordinarily say later, Gator, but I'm going to give this a shot. That might be later, Gator, and Mandarin. Bob, I think there's a pretty good chance that you either said something very offensive because of your inflection, or you ordered some worms. But in either case, Mandarin speakers, sure, send us your angry emails. (laughs) 